When we launched our Twitter trends, it was showing people what people were talking about on Twitter, which now gave people that didn't know what Twitter was about and didn't know what was interesting going on a way to quickly click on that topic and then see all the tweets that were happening in real time. We launched it and we went from about 250 queries that first day to over a million queries a day within six weeks. And we had to shut down all our other products because we didn't have enough compute power to handle anything but that. Then it made the most sense to merge the two companies. And so the concept of taking two startups and putting them together at the time had been unheard of. So it was uh, doubly terrifying. Welcome to The Road to Why by the Northern Trust Institute, a show where business owners and entrepreneurs discuss their life's work and explore the intersection of business, family, wealth, and legacy. I'm your host, Eric Shapea, Director of Business Services at Northern Trust. My guest today is a lifelong entrepreneur. Early in his career, Abdur Chowdhury rose through the ranks to become AOL's chief architect. He then went on to co-found Samize, a startup where he developed a way to organize real-time opinions on the internet, and for which the BBC has dubbed him the father of trending. In 2008, Abdur merged Samize with another startup by the name of Twitter, and became Twitter's first chief scientist. Abdur has also ventured into the field of education as co-founder of the Alta Vista School in San Francisco. Currently, Abdur is the CEO and co-founder of Aura Home, a software company specializing in digital photo frames that allow families to share pictures from anywhere. Abdur has launched over 25 commercial products and holds over 50 patents. He is also a member of Northern Trust's Client Advisory Board, where he provides us insights on how we can better serve our clients. In today's episode, Abdur discusses his journey as an entrepreneur and provides us tips for entrepreneurs starting out on their own journey. But first, let's go back to Abdur's childhood, where his initial interests in entrepreneurship and technology started with a $99 computer. You know, my parents didn't have a lot of money, and they bought me a Timex Sinclair. And I don't know if you're familiar with this computer, but uh, it was sold for $99, and it had 2K of memory. And if you know what 2K is, it's 2,000 characters. So you could write a program for this computer, and as soon as you got to the 1999th character, the next one, it just stopped. You couldn't hit space. You couldn't do anything. You had to backspace and uh, use the computer from there. And I took it apart and I found a way to get 16K and built a motherboard for it so I could add 16K of memory to it. And I remember all my friends making fun of me and saying, why are you doing that? That's so stupid. I think you're wasting your time. You should just come out and play. And I was like, well, I don't know. This seems pretty cool. Um, and uh, the rest of my career, computers seem to have worked out. And what decade was that when you were, when you got your first computer? That would have been like 79, 80. Yeah, I might be dating myself too much at that point. Uh, I do remember taking a typing class in, uh, 
in high school, and uh, I was the only guy in there. And I think I was typing about 45 words a minute, and everyone else was, you know, 90 plus, no errors. And uh, the teacher looked at me and said, I don't think you have a future in this. <laughs> I was like, I just want to know how to use a keyboard. <laughs> Why is this so hard? Uh, but at that time, you know, the computers weren't really a thing. And, uh, you know, the IBM Selectric typewriter, if you remember that, uh, was, was how all offices ran. So you grew up on a farm. At some point, you get interested in computers. But as I understand it, maybe towards the college years, you take an interest in cave diving. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure I was up for college. I was kind of just... Not sure if I wanted to spend all the time on classes, having way more fun doing other things, and got a job in a scuba diving shop and ended up meeting a bunch of cave divers down in Florida and started cave diving. And as the dives got more advanced and deeper, it meant that you could no longer use air safely. Air has a narcotic effect at depth. And I was like, okay, well, how do we get rid of this? And the answer is you get rid of nitrogen and you replace it with some other gas, either helium or hydrogen, depending on the depth of the dive. And there was one guy who was selling tables and the tables were how, you, how deep to go down and what gas mixture to use. And uh, he was charging $400 for these tables. And I didn't have $400. There was no way I could afford that. And so I said, how hard could this be? So I went and got every book on decompression theory and read them all. And then said, oh, I could do this. This doesn't seem that hard. I can write some tables. And I started writing them by hand. And about 60 pages into the calculation, I realized I'd made a mistake on page 12. And then I was like, oh, I could just write a program to do this. And so I wrote a program that you could tell it how deep you were going and what kind of parameters you wanted for the gas and it would spit out how long you need to stay down and what gases to breathe on the way back up. And next thing I know, I had my first company and I was selling decompression tables to other cave divers who wanted to do similar things. And so I was selling the program for $99 and you could have unlimited tables rather than $400 for one table. And uh, lots of people are using it. So that's, it's sort of your first entrepreneurial endeavor, which is a marriage of something you're interested in, which is cave diving and, and maybe technology, entrepreneurship. You go back to school, and, and then what happens? Where you go back out into, is it the tech industry, or where, where's the next step in your journey? I went and uh, finished my undergrad in computer science, then my master's in computer science, and uh, then started working on my PhD in computer science. Uh, all the while, like uh, working, I had a, a little company where I would go fix computers for law firms because it was an easy way to pay the bills and I could do it in my spare time between classes and studying. At that time, still, uh, people were pretty afraid of computers and I think maybe even today they are. And if you weren't afraid to like open them up and change a motherboard or do whatever they needed, uh, you could make some money. After getting his PhD, Abdur joined the world of academia. 
But soon thereafter, his entrepreneurial spirit motivated him to enter the tech industry, where he believed his ideas could make the greatest impact on the world. I started uh, uh, teaching at Georgetown, networking and uh, databases. And I then got a job at AOL as a software engineer and then worked my way up from there to uh, chief architect at AOL at the time. This is probably in the early 2000s. Academia was interesting. Did not have the allure of companies for one specific reason. Uh, academia, you know, I would write a paper and maybe 20 people would reference it, and that would be success, where in industry you could build a product and a million people used it, and that got me really excited. I remember going back to North Dakota for Christmas one year, and it was kind of that decision of should I stay in academia or should I go to industry? And I asked myself the question in a mall was like, is the thing I'm working on useful to anyone in this mall? And in academia, maybe 20 years or five years down the line it is, and in a very esoteric way, in some part of their life it's used, buried down 5,000 layers. But if you built stuff, then it would impact their lives directly. And that was a way bigger draw for me, way more interesting problem to think about and work on. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, you know, the, the impact that I will have to the people around me. I am curious, as an entrepreneur, and we'll get into some of the companies that you've built and sold in a bit, and the company that you're co-founding currently, what do you think makes a good entrepreneur, you know, to the young entrepreneurs that might be listening to this? Or we could even flip that and say, what are some of the things that entrepreneurs do wrong? in your experience? Let's go back to like the cave diving. I think cave diving teaches you a really important lesson of life and it's risk management. Um, all cave divers will take three lights on a dive. And the reason is, is the probability of failure of one light on a dive is say 10, 20%. Uh, the failure of two lights on a dive is like 1%. And the failure of three lights in a dive is like, I don't know, 0.001%. And so all of a sudden what you've done is you've acknowledged that you're going to be doing something risky. But that risk you are trying to mitigate because you still want to hit the goal. And so in any company that you're going to go start, you really have to do a lot of risk management and mitigation. Like, am I going to be able to eat? How can I do this? Uh, if I make this decision, will my company have enough runway or money that I can survive if the decision is wrong? And so you constantly have to be thinking about every decision is, if this goes wrong, can I survive it? It seems kind of crazy, but I really believe that you should be thinking about a lot of the risk you're taking and can I survive the risk if I'm wrong? Because almost every decision you make in a company is wrong. Uh, and the question is, how quickly can you determine it's wrong and fix it and do the right thing? And if you don't have enough runway and that's money, then you can't survive very many failures. 
A lot of your career, as I look back at your time at AOL, the business that you built that you sold to Twitter, what you're doing now at Aura Frames, is about connecting people. And I'm curious, you have a daughter. How do you connect with her? And what I mean by that is how do you inspire her to find her own path in life, to be intellectually curious? Do you have any thoughts on you know the, the approach of connecting with, with your own daughter? Uh, this is probably something I have no idea how to do. We have a great relationship. I think the only way I can inspire her and get her excited about things is to have my own excitement about life and constantly be learning. I think the only thing I can really transfer to her is working hard every day and as a behavior, as a parent. So she sees that this is the way people should act. I think probably the biggest disservice I could do to her was not be interested in things, not continue learning, and not working hard. I think that would give her the wrong values. You know, our children don't always listen to us. And sometimes you think they're listening or, or absorbing what you tell them. But I think they do pay attention to what you do. And so maybe I'm an okay influence or example in those few areas. Well, on the topic of the next generation and a life of learning, I know that you founded actually a school. I think it's the Alta Vista School. It's a K through eight private school in San Francisco, maybe around 10 years or so ago. And it has an interesting approach to education, which I believe underscores your philosophy of learning and how to foster creativity in the next generation. And we spend a lot of time with clients and the next generation helping to educate them on the responsibilities of wealth and running the family business, for instance, and being a good citizen. I'm curious what prompted you to found the school and what your overall thoughts are on what it means to be educated or to get an education that's meaningful? I think that in life there are three things we can do with problems. Uh, we can ignore them, we can complain about them, or we can fix them. And every once in life, there you're confronted with a problem that you actually need to fix or fix relatively quickly. And our children are probably the one thing that we're willing to drop everything else in life and try to go around and, and make better. In 2010, uh, our daughter was looking for a, a kindergarten in San Francisco. And we had interviewed with a lot of the schools and all of them were really interviewing us as parents. We found it very distasteful, mostly because we weren't sure that this was the right program for her. Uh, we ended up putting her into a uh, one school and it was uh, floundering and we met seven other families and we put together Alta Vista with this common vision of like, we should build a school that is focused on kids, not the parents. We should be focused on critical thinking of asking good questions because it doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, lawyer, teacher, writer. It just doesn't matter. 
and that we think the only way to get kids there is to have small classroom sizes where teachers are focused on teaching and making sure each child is learning however they learn. And so we started the school in 2010, and it's now 14 years later, and uh, two campuses, about 320 kids. Uh, it's doing pretty well. Uh, all the graduates have gone on to some of the best high schools and good colleges, so I feel really good about the program. Learning how to ask good questions is one of the core principles of the school that Abdur co-founded. And as advisors, we have found that this is a skill critical for the development of the next generation of wealth inheritors. We've even helped to design trusts and other vehicles like family partnerships that help younger family members cultivate this skill. Asking good questions is also the hallmark of a successful entrepreneur and is what inspired Abdur to start the company he would eventually merge with Twitter. We started a company called Surmise this is back in 2006, answering uh, what we thought were three interesting questions. One was uh, real-time search. The second thing we thought was an interesting thing was uh, sentiment analysis. And we thought also that there was so much stuff getting published on the internet at this time that summarization was going to be important. And uh, we built a company around technology, which I, in hindsight, think was a very tough path. And the reason is you don't have a problem to solve. So you're kind of like, I'm running around with a hammer and telling everyone, hey, look, I've got this really cool thing. And so I think at the end, I would never build a company just around technology again. I would build only companies around problems and then figure out the right technology to solve those problems for people. We had built this company and we had launched a few products and we were going to go tell one of our investors that we were no longer working on those projects, but we thought this Twitter thing was really cool and we we're going to point our real-time search engine at it and our summarization engine at it. And the engine trends is based on looking at two things, expected versus observed. And what that means is what, what do I expect people to talk about and what am I actually seeing them talk about? So... An example would be, everyone talks about Apple every day. But if all of a sudden people talk about Apple 2x more, something's happening. And so you can look at this expected versus observed and start to make determinations of what's interesting. So I had done this, and when we launched our Twitter trends, um, it was showing people what people were talking about on Twitter, which now gave people that didn't know what Twitter was about and didn't know what was interesting going on, a way to quickly click on that topic and then see all the tweets that were happening in real time. We launched it and we went from about 250 queries that first day to over a million queries a day within six weeks. And we had to shut down all our other products because we didn't have enough compute power to handle anything but that then it made the most sense to merge the two companies. And so the concept of taking two startups and putting them together at the time had been unheard of. So it was uh, doubly terrifying. And this was in 2008, not exactly the easiest time to merge a company. 
No, it was not a great time uh, for companies in general. Um, you know, but that's kind of the cards that were dealt to us. So that's what we worked with. And uh, come 2009, everything changed. We had the plane crash in the Hudson. Ev and Biz were on the Oprah Winfrey show. And just like, it was like week after week of like crazy growth, crazy growth. Going from, you know, a small startup to the, the thing that everyone's talking about. And I'm sure people were kind of, didn't know what to do with it, if you will, who worked there. So I guess just if we could keep tracing your career trajectory a little bit, because I find it so interesting. You're at Twitter now. You've The company you've co-founded is merged with Twitter. You're the chief scientist. Where do you go from there? I was burnt out. I was done. I, you know, didn't want to see another email, didn't want to deal with another problem. And uh, I quit. And I spent nine months doing all the things you had neglected for, you know, the last, you know, decade or so. And then woke up one day and uh, Eric, my uh, PhD little brother, and was like, we should start a company. And I was like, oh, should we? And so we got together and we started playing with phones and building small apps where you could connect friends, families together and see what we could build, see what was interesting. We built about seven or eight products and killed them all. And then one day he's like, I bought a digital picture frame for my mom. They suck. We should do that. And I was like, we're not doing hardware. And uh, a couple months later, he came to me. He's like, hey, um, I got this guy we should meet. And he had just finished uh, designing the, the first Peloton bike. And he was into digital picture frames. And so we sat down and talked about, you know, what are they? What could they be? How big did it get? And what could we do with it? And we kind of realized that they launched and, and peaked before the technology was ready. And we realized that we could flip this thing around and build a nice family network around these devices. And it wouldn't be creepy. You could share photos with your parents of your kids. And you wouldn't have all the risks of, you know, being online. Uh, it would be in their home. It wouldn't be needy, like I need likes or, you know, you just pay attention to it because there's no advertising model. You actually bought a physical device. And so um, we launched it in 2016. Oprah's favorite things were on The View, New York Times gift guide sold out. And we've been doubling and tripling every year since. Like many entrepreneurs, Abdur is not very good at retiring. So I ask him the question we ask all of our guests. What is his why? What drives him to continue working hard at pursuing the life of an entrepreneur? Well, A, I'm not sure I could get a job, so uh, I've got to do something. Uh, Well, you know, when we had a daughter, my, my wife said, no more cave diving. Uh, So that one's been removed from the list. You know, there's intellectual problems and curiosity. And so in my early days, it was technology. And now it's around organizations and solving problems with the least amount of people. And I think that those problems are super interesting to understand because humans have so many dynamics with them and getting them to work well together 
and solve problems at a scale larger than themselves is hard. And so it kind of, it's interesting for me to wake up and work on something very different than what I've worked on in the past. I know a lot of people that work on one topic their entire life, and they're very happy with that. And I think a lot of things are interesting, so I like to, you know, keep evolving and changing. And as a lifelong learner, I know this is a cheesy question, so forgive me, but how do you read books? Some people do, I'm, I'm focused on one book, this is what I'm reading. Some people have a couple going at one time. How do you take in information? I think reading is very, very important. I don't think people do it enough. I am a big fan of long-form books. Mostly, it means that someone's taken a, a, a tremendous amount of time to think through a topic, whether it's fiction, nonfiction. They've gotten through a small filtering process of some kind of editorial process or a filter for a publisher. And so they're generally better. I then categorize my books into three piles. I have a bunch of cheesy sci-fi that I love, and it makes me happy and, you know, feeds the soul. I have a pile of books on topics that I don't know anything about, and so I will read about them. And then I have a third pile of things that I want to continue learning about, no matter what that topic is, whether it's business or, you know, some hobby. And so I think everyone should figure out what their style of reading is and kind of mix it up. So they're constantly learning something new. They're having fun at it and uh, they're digging deeper into things that they're interested in. Abdur's journey embodies the entrepreneurial spirit. He has a lifelong love of learning and a keen sense of risk management when starting a new company. He also has an appreciation of the importance of asking good questions and a desire to make a greater impact on the world. With the right guidance and wealth planning, we have helped many of our clients instill this same entrepreneurial spirit in the next generation. A huge thank you to Abdur for sharing his story with us today. If you enjoyed our conversation, please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.